This is chapter 145 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. There's no better time than the present to get lost in a good book and step away from the worries of the world for a while. This week, a couple of fiction books that fit the bill. Former Navy SEAL Jack Carr didn't really calm my nerves about the coronavirus pandemic when before our interview, he told me he was scared that I was still taking the subway into work every day. Fun fact, newsroom employees are considered essential workers. Nevertheless, before diving into a discussion about his new James Reese thriller, Savage Son, I wanted his take on what the world is facing. The fight against COVID-19 has been likened to a war. You've actually been in battle zones. Is that an apt analogy? It is in that for both, you need to be prepared and you need to adapt quickly, quicker than your enemy adapts, because that's their job too, is adapt to you. And typically the person or the unit that does that um, faster than the enemy is the one that's victorious. So same thing here. You know, that uh, a virus is really, it's, it's adapting, it's morphing, it's trying to survive. And we're trying to adapt and uh, either either kill it or mitigate it so that it doesn't uh, kill any more people than uh, absolutely necessary. So it's uh, so in that respect, I think it's uh, appropriate to liken it to a war. Obviously, it's an invisible enemy and it takes a uh, different set of skills to counter and has a different group of people on the front lines. Uh, although there is a little, there is some overlap as we see with National Guard and we see with the, uh, the Comfort and the Mercy, the ships that are uh, docked on either coast that are helping out here. But uh, truly, those uh, the doctors, the nurses, all the medical professionals, uh, first responders, people who can't stay home and, and hunker down to uh, try to, to flatten out the, uh, uh, the increasing number of cases. So uh, in that respect, there are frontline forces just like there are in the military, and there are people on the back end just like in the military. There are logistics. Uh, the Army is very good at logistics. In this case, we have groups like Amazon that are keeping us going um, who are very good at logistics that are delivering supplies to people so they don't have to leave their homes. So uh, there, are, there are a lot of parallels. You're a former SEAL. Other soldiers, military men and women, have to deal with the stress and mental health effects of war every day they go to work. Do you have any advice for the average person who's trying to get a handle on everything that's going on, how to cope? It's important, even though as horrible as a situation can be, you think it is, uh, you've got to try to find a way to move forward in a positive way, in a positive, positive direction. Um, so if everybody does that, a little differently, but it's finding that uh, that purpose, finding that mission, and uh, and taking whatever good you possibly can from a horrible situation, uh, and channeling that into something positive as you go forward. So, um, you know, for people on the battlefield, maybe it's coming home and uh, helping others, showing them that hey, there's life after this, um, or here here are some options for you. Here, let's uh, uh, let's help, let me help you find your purpose. Let me let's find this next mission that's outside of the military, so you're not living back there in uh, Ramadi, Iraq, or in, uh, in Kabul, or wherever it happened to have been. Um, let's use that as a foundation in which to move forward in a positive way, no matter how horrible that experience was for you. Uh, so similar in this respect, it's trying to find that good, trying to find maybe lessons. So as we move forward as, a, as, as well, individuals, as families, as neighbors, as communities, as a country as a whole, uh, we're better prepared, not just for this, 
but for anything that might come our way in the future, whether that be a, a natural disaster like an earthquake or a hurricane or a tsunami um, or a terrorist attack or a combination of a few different things, um, maybe it can get us back to being a little more uh, self-reliant and self-sufficient so we have a base level of preparedness, uh, not necessarily not hoarding, not, not uh, paranoia, but just a base level of preparedness that allows us as individuals, families, and communities to focus our bandwidth where it really needs to be, which uh, in this case is adapting to a changing environment. So um, they're, they're, it's important to find that good and channel it in positive directions going forward. I remember after 9-11, there was this big push to get people to uh, put together to-go kits, emergency kits, just in case. I think maybe we might see people start moving towards that again and throw some rolls of toilet paper in there while they're at it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's just strange when people seem to be fixated on that part. But uh, no, I think you're right. And for everybody, it's different, uh, depending on where you live, your personal experience, um, uh, everyone's comfort level with levels of preparedness will be different. For some people, it might be nothing. Um, they're comfortable with uh, someone else taking care of them, maybe. Other people, it might be, you know what, I should probably have a couple days of food here, whether it's in my apartment, my house, wherever. Uh, maybe water, maybe where to filter it. Uh, maybe I just put that aside and I forget about it just in case it's, I ever need it. It's in a closet. Uh, and then some people will, you know, t- will take it a little further and be like, okay, uh, you know what I need? We need to have some things in our cars just in case we get stranded on, a, on the side of the road that will help us uh, survive for, for a day or two. Uh, or here's a bag by the front door that I can grab that has a certain number of days of food and water and some medical supplies. Um, and uh, so it's going to be different for everyone. But what I think is impor- most important is that if you felt ill-prepared going into the last couple weeks, take notes on what you felt ill-prepared about. Uh, whether that was water, food, medical supplies, or more importantly, medical training, uh, whether it has something to defend yourself and your loved ones or not. Um, And just take notes of those. And most importantly, when it's appropriate, take action and change that so you have that base level covered, that foundation covered. So if something else happens, you're not scrambling around, worried about water, worried about food, uh, worried about those necessities, and you can then adapt to changing conditions more so than if you're worried about, oh, my goodness, where, where's my family going to get this next meal? Uh, and an often overlooked part is the financial security part as well. Um, how comfortable are you with uh, with savings? And are you comfortable with that in a bank? Or do you want a little bit of cash at home maybe or some combination of both? Or just what will you feel comfortable with? And are you not comfortable with your situation now? Can you not cover the next month's bills or maybe two months' bills? And, you know, three months is probably a good uh, – you know, amount of savings that's accessible to have in order to, to pay your bills in case anything happens. It doesn't have to be COVID-19 or an infectious disease or a terrorist attack. It could be anything. You could just be losing your job uh, because of something else. So uh, I think it's a good time for people to take a breath, uh, take some notes, and then take action uh, when they can. So let's switch gears. Let's talk about Savage Sun. First, you got to tell me how a nearly 100-year-old story inspired it. Yes. So I read Most Dangerous Game back in sixth grade, and uh, my daughter's reading that now, so I understand they, they still do teach this. Um, and I just was captivated by that story when I couldn't believe we were actually reading it in sixth grade, uh, because it was so different than the other things we were reading at the time uh, as a class. And I just knew that one day I would write a story that paid tribute to Richard Connell's 1924 short story. Um, and I, I got to that point, 
because my mom was a librarian and we grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading. So I already knew that one day I was going to, one, serve my country in uniform and two, read books, uh, the kind of like I was enjoying at that time. And I think about fifth grade is really when I transitioned over to start reading the things that my parents were reading, uh, definitely by sixth grade. So I was reading books by uh, David Morrell, Nelson DeMille, Tom Clancy, A.J. Quinnell, J.C. Pollock, Mark Olden, all these guys in the 80s who had protagonists that had backgrounds that I wanted to have in real life one day. So um, I knew that I'd spend my time in the military and then I would get out and I would become an author. So um, uh, as part of that, when I wrote down my ideas for the first novel, one of those was Savage Son. And it's the one I wanted to write first, but I knew that the characters weren't developed to a place where I could really explore the themes I wanted to in Savage Son. I had to get them to that, that place. So and that took two books. That took uh, The Terminalist, which is a story of revenge without constraint and uh, essentially a refighting of Iraq and Afghanistan on U.S. soil, if you read it at a, at a different level. Uh, and then True Believer continues that journey, and it's a story of redemption uh, about uh, someone trying to find that next mission, like we just talked about, find that next purpose in life, learn to live again. Uh, and then this third one is the one I always wanted to write. So Savage Son has been uh, in my mind for a long time, 30-plus years. Uh, it was also inspired by Rogue Mail by Jeffrey Household, for people who are familiar with that uh, 1939 story that uh, really changed the genre. And then David Morrell's First Blood in 1972. And then uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, Louis L'Amour's uh, Last of the Breed, which I had such fond memories of reading. So, uh, so those four really formed the foundation and the inspiration for Savage Son. So people who aren't familiar with those particular stories, what we're really what it boils down to is a story of hunter and hunted. That's right. So it's uh, exploring really in this one the dark side of man through the dynamic of hunter and hunted. Um, And I do that through the characters um, from the first two novels, because they're at the stage where uh, where it makes sense to to explore that theme uh, with today's geopolitics as the backdrop. So it's uh, it's uh, I'm super excited to get out there and. now I, need, now I need, as soon as all this is over, I need to dive into book four, which is all outlined. And I have, uh, I'm in the middle of, but I've been sidetracked by the, the launch of Savage Sun, especially in these crazy times where it's, uh, it must be hard to launch anything, um, but do it in, uh, in an appropriate way that helps as many people as I possibly can. Um, like independent bookstores trying to drive traffic to, to them because they obviously have zero foot traffic right now. So I'm doing some uh, limited edition Savage Sun book plates you can only get through independent bookstores to try to drive people in uh, in that direction. And then uh, I have merchandise on my site and have 100% of uh, those profits going to the COVID-19 response fund. So um, trying to do what, what little I can uh, to help out during these times when so many people are, are suffering and they're so uncertain about what the, the coming weeks and months have uh, in store. So when I was researching uh, you and Savage Sun for this interview, I came across this tidbit that you have to tell us all about leaving all your electronic devices home and traveling through Siberia with nothing but a sat phone. Yes, yes. So for the second one, I traveled to Mozambique, and I started researching that one um, before I even submitted the first novel to Simon & Schuster, uh, because I was always going to write two. Uh, I remember John Grisham, he wrote A Time to Kill first, and then he couldn't give that book away. Uh, Then he wrote The Firm, and we've had one John Grisham novel every year since. Uh, So if he'd stopped after A Time to Kill, uh, he might still be practicing law today. So I always knew I was going to write two. And going to Mozambique and spending time there, talking to the people about uh, Chinese influence in the area, 
uh, both illegal and legal mining operations, how they how meat poaching plays a part in that, how the ivory poaching trade plays a, plays a part in, in uh, what's happening to the environment and the animals and uh, the politics. Like they all wanted to tell me their story, like everybody I ran into over there. Um, and so I knew for this third one, I had to go to Kamchatka Peninsula, which is just south of Siberia. And because uh, I needed that local flavor and there's just certain things you can't get from the Google search. So, uh, so off I went to Kamchatka Peninsula. And uh, I also knew that with my past, with the 20 years in the SEAL teams, that I, who knows what people have sent me in emails and text messages over the years. And I knew that as soon as I walked through customs in Russia, like all those things would be sucked out of all my electronic devices. <laughs> so, uh, so I left all that stuff behind and just took a sat phone to stay in touch with, uh, with my family and for, for emergencies and uh, brought a pen and a paper so I could outline book four on the, on the flight over. Uh, and off I went. And sure enough, I got a lot of things that I could not get just by Googling or zooming in on, on uh, Google Earth or Maps or something like that. But interestingly enough, people over there were very hesitant to talk to me. So the complete opposite of going to Mozambique and, and another follow-on trip to South Africa I did for, uh, for research for the second novel. This one, I, I just assumed it would be the same because I'm going so fast. I'm in this full-on sprint right now. So I just assumed, oh, everybody's going to want to talk to me over here and tell me the same types of stories that they did in Mozambique and South Africa. Tell me the story of their country and their families. No, totally different deal. And I think that's because for most of Russian history, if someone was asking you very pointed questions, particularly of the kind that you ask if you're writing a political thriller, um, you weren't long for this earth. You were off, off to the gulag. So I think that's just there's a natural hesitation to talk to, uh, to strangers, to, to foreigners, uh, or just open up to, to anyone that's asking these kind of questions. So um, uh, I had to pry some of that information out of them. Uh, but uh, I think they still think I'm a spy. <laughs> I would I would think so. Traveling with nothing but a staff phone and asking really pointed questions. Uh, I could see how <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't end up in a jail over there. <laughs> I know. Seriously, I know. We were on a military base for a little bit in the backcountry and flying around on MI8 helicopters, which come into to play in the, the storyline as well. So, um, but yeah, it was, I knew I couldn't. I knew I couldn't write this novel in good faith without going there and putting boots on the ground and talking to people and uh, looking at the landscape, feeling the dirt, uh, just everything that that uh, that gives you the local flavor of a place. And I hear that your protagonist, James Reese, has convinced Chris Pratt to return to television. I hope there weren't any enhanced <laughs> interrogation techniques involved in that. <laughs> no, it was amazing. He, uh, he optioned it before it even uh, hit shelves in 2018. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what's crazy about that is that as I was writing, um, I was kind of thinking, you know, they kind of tell you not to, not that kind of. It's not advisable, I guess, to think of someone playing your character as you write. But as a child of the 80s, is it very, it's very difficult for me not to do that. Uh, and the only person I thought of playing the role was Chris Pratt. And then so for him to, for it to come full circle and for him to want to play the part and to option it before it even hits shelves. Um, I mean, yeah, the science, the science pointed to saying yes to that one. So, <laughs> so we'll see. Any idea when, uh, when we might get a chance to, to see that? I do, but I'm sworn to secrecy. Oh, Okay. Well, you have an answer. That's that's good. Maybe that means soon. <laughs> Maybe we'll see. And who knows how the, the COVID-19 stuff will play into oh, delaying know. other projects and how all that stuff snowballs. So I'm keeping my expectations very low, uh, just so I'm not disappointed if it doesn't happen. But uh, uh, right now, things are things are looking good. Well, I guess in the meantime, 
people can catch up on your series. It's The Terminalist, True Believer, and the newest one is Savage Son. Jack Carr, thank you for spending some time and talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me, and please uh, stay safe out there. Just a few months ago, there would have been nothing strange about a thriller whose plot revolves around a large, multi-day sporting event. But in this day and age, it's kind of surreal with the entire sports world on an extended pause. But that doesn't mean you won't enjoy Strike Me Down, the new financial thriller page-turner from Mindy Mejia. I recently spoke with her about her inspiration behind blending the highly competitive world of kickboxing with the equally intense world of forensic accounting. This is my fourth book, and this one was inspired um, actually more by my own life than than any of my previous three. Uh, I am an accountant. I'm a CPA, and I worked for 16 years in corporate accounting before leaving to write full-time. And so this, this book was actually my attempt to blend those two worlds, crime fiction and accounting, uh, because most people think that they are polar opposites, <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to show readers that, uh, that accounting and thrillers can occupy the same territory. For those people not completely familiar with what forensic accounting entails, because that, that's really what this story is about or, or the world of accounting that it's about, can you tell us? Yes, definitely. So Nora Trier, the protagonist of Strike Me Down, is a forensic accountant, and she chases fraud and money launderers across the globe. Um, So forensic accountants are the accountants who really are detectives and are looking to expose financial crime and be able to prove the crimes in a court of law. So the story unfolds a lot like, you know, a typical police procedural would, where Nora is gathering evidence, she's interviewing witnesses and narrowing down her list of suspects uh, to try to figure out um, who stole this $20 million prize. Is the world of accounting as exciting or death-defying as you make it out to be in this book? (laughs) Oh, completely. 100%. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, Mick Jagger was an accountant and Robert Plant. So accountants are, are extremely exciting people. <laughs> I had no idea. You just blew my mind. I know. I know. It's somebody, a reader just told me that recently, too. And I, I didn't actually believe them and had to look it up. <laughs> but it is true. Yeah. Now, do you kickbox as a way to blow off steam? I hadn't prior to writing the book. Um, I was a gym rat, but I hadn't really done kickboxing or any martial arts. Um, but so when I knew I was I was writing this book and going to get into that world, um, I convinced my husband to take six months of kickboxing classes with me, and uh, we actually got pretty good, uh, decent anyway. Uh, so so we uh, we learned together, and it was uh, it was really fun. It was, it was probably the, the most fun research that I've done for a book to date. So is Nora like you or you in any ways like her now that you've written her? I mean, we share an accounting background, um, but I was actually on the opposite side of things. So working in the corporate world, Nora would have been the one to come in and interview me to try to figure out, um, you know, what's happening in the company. Um, so I would have been the witness and, and while she's the detective. The one thing that really struck me while I was reading your book, and it's probably only because we're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic and we're all being told mm-hmm. to stay at home, is the fact that the the really main event, so to speak, is this giant kickboxing event that stretches over multiple days and everybody's worried about the number of people around, the lines, the the social media. And I just keep thinking, this is totally not like the world we're living in right now. I know. Thank 
goodness that the, the, the strike me down, strike down that the, the kickboxing tournament happened in July 2019 <laughs> because <laughs> it would have been postponed this year, right? It's, it's this huge uh, kickboxing event um, that, that's happening in, in Minneapolis. And, and yeah, just it's bringing everyone together, packing U.S. Bank Stadium, which is where the Minnesota Vikings play, you know, 62,000 people. So it's it's this massive event uh, with, with fights going on in three rings simultaneously. It could absolutely not happen today. Of course not. <laughs> and what are you doing busy uh, during all these calls to stay at home? I am staying at home. Uh, so like many schools across the country, my, my children's school is shut down. And so we are home together and uh, just trying to, obviously, the book tour for Strike Me Down, the physical tour is totally canceled. So um, I'm spending my days with my kids trying to figure out how to do as much as we can online and support other authors whose books are coming out around this time, too, because it's uh, it's just a, it's a strange time to to try to bring a book into the world right now. So that means you're not writing currently. I'm revising my next book, uh, but no, I'm not not actually writing. It, it feels like we're living in dystopian noir, uh, but not not actually writing uh, anything new right now. And what is uh, what is that next book? Is it more accounting, or are you stepping a little bit away now? That you've given us a peek at that world. I, I am stepping a little bit away. So far, I've written standalones. All of my books are are their own separate worlds. And I might come back to to Nora's world of forensic accounting someday. She has kind of a very natural setup for investigations and and crime. But uh, right now, I've actually moved to Iowa for for my next book, for book five, and I'm following a physicist who's accused in her ex husband's disappearance and has to prove her innocence. I'm going to guess you're a math person. I mean, you are an accountant. You must be a math person. I am. Yes, I, I do. I love the, the puzzles involved in math and the, the putting the pieces together um, to bring the evidence, bring, bring everything to um, a very clear picture. And numbers are, you know, they're our most perfect language. And, and, and I do. <laughs> I really do like numbers as well as letters. And you've actually packed a lot of twists and turns into Strike Me Down. Did you have a spreadsheet to plot that all out? <laughs> you would think I would, right? <laughs> no, I did. I did some accounting work. You know, I, I kind of like figured out how things were going to be hidden and, you know, what really how how Nora was going to have to uncover all of this. Uh, but I, I don't. It's strange that I don't use spreadsheets for my books, but it, that is kind of a separate territory in my brain. You know, right versus left. I, um, I, I'm more of a pantser when it comes to writing crime fiction, so I, I don't have detailed outlines. I have friends that do, and I'm just in awe of them. Uh, but I tend to let my characters come to life on the page and let them show me who they are so that I know what they're capable of. That, that's really interesting because I totally would think with as detailed as you have to be as an accountant that you would be you would approach writing in the same way. And I definitely do in later drafts. Um, it's, it's that initial draft that I just kind of let breathe and, and come to life on its own so that I understand the world and and the people in it. Um, but then, yes, in later drafts, I am much more rigid and and I'm kind of adding the equations together. Well, we've been talking with Mindy Mejia. Her new book is Strike Me Down. You know, I hope that the current world situation doesn't put a damper on your book sales and getting people to to get out there and read your book. It's really very entertaining. So if people are looking for a little bit of an escape, I think uh, you've got the recipe right there. 
Absolutely. Thank you. And I, I think a lot of us have kind of been in this crisis mode in these first few weeks. And hopefully as, as thing, we acclimate and get used to spending more time at home and, and with different activities, then we can be more open to, you know, setting down with a book and, and just enjoying a story and a little bit of an escape in our heads if we can't physically get out. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. I hope you're healthy and safe and keeping in touch with all those friends and family we can't see in person at the moment. You can always connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. And I want to leave you with these words from Helen Keller. Although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.